Welcome to the official tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with a well-known coach, well-known author, Frank Giampaolo. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. It's great meeting you. So obviously you had a lot of tennis experience, been in the game for a long time, former tennis parent. But tell me a little bit about your background, because a lot of times being a tennis coach, being a tennis director, being a tennis parent doesn't always lead to wanting to write books about the game, right? It actually leads to the opposite, to retire and like move to Cancun, right? And get away, yeah. get away from the tennis parents and and all the other things. But So tell me about uh, A, how you got in the game, B, your ascension, and C, how you're still in it. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been a while, I tell you. It was the late 80s when I was at Ohio State and I saw this, an old tennis master pro, Vic Braden, on a, back then he had a TV show, Tennis for the Future, and I thought it was super interesting how he would, he would combine super sense of humor stuff, so super funny guy, but with state-of-the-art sports science information. And I thought, man, if I was going to teach, I got to learn from this guy. So we drove out to California. Uh, my buddies were all going to go to uh, Las Vegas at the last minute. I ditched Las Vegas. I drove out to Southern Cal where his tennis school was, knocked on the door. And of course they said, look, man, we get 20 you know, uh, resumes a week. We don't have a spot. But for two weeks though, I, I sat with those yellow legal pads and I took notes from like sunup to sundown. And uh, sometimes you make your own luck, you know? And uh, so I got to work with Vic Braden and open schools around, around the world with him and uh, did a ton of research back in the day when, you know, he would spend $100,000 on one video camera to do you know, a thousand frames per second and we, he would shoot everything. And, and so nowadays you can get the same kind of video technology on your cell phone, right? For, <laughs> for what, three or four bucks or something. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it was, it was amazing. I became a tennis parent. My kid was into soccer and which was kind of a better athletic history, I thought, but at around 10, she decided to try tennis and when she was getting into the game, I had her working with a, a different coach that was traveling still a ton. And so oddly, she she comes to me and she goes, I don't like the game. It's not fun. And she was ranked about 80 or 90, maybe in Southern Cal. So she wasn't going anywhere really. But it turns out that the coach was teaching her to play the style that he used to play. This guy was, you've heard it before, but Jose Gonzalez, and he was a South American. And he, he loved to he loved to use all of his great lateral movement. He was super patient. And my daughter wasn't. She was wired opposite. She was wired like shorter fuse, shorter tolerance. Yeah. yeah. And so anyway, we kind of did a little bit of a personality profile, which we used to do a ton back then. And we just kind of figured out, look, let's just try to train you the way you're wired. And so she was allowed now to go in and take swing volleys out of the air, spot when people are vulnerable, attack. And she went from 80 to, I think, number one in California in about six, eight months. 
And so then she found her passion. And so she was into it and she was number one in the nation for a few years and played the US Open by 15. And so that was all great. It was a fun journey, but along that whole journey and me being a, like a lifelong learner and maybe an educator, I thought, look, look, man, nobody's educating these parents. They're unknowingly, they're sabotaging their kids' chances of success. And so I wrote the first tennis parent Bible maybe 15 years ago. Most industry experts told me that uh, it would never sell and nobody would you know, read it. But then it turned out it was, a, it was like an international number one hit. So I, I spent the last 15 years now traveling and working with Tennis Australia, with Craig Tiley in New Zealand and Tennis Israel and Canada. And, and so just kind of educating how and why coaches should educate parents. And, you know, man, from being around forever, that parents are either the motors helping propel the ships or the anchors sink in the ships. Right, and, right, right. <laughs> Well, let me let me ask you this. So go back to the Victor. I would say with the the King Richard movie, Vic Braden became like you know more outside of tennis. People start to know who his name is, right? Yes. And I think in our sport, people try to sort of replicate their local model into a national model, right? And it's really hard to do without your own passion, your own commitment. It's hard to manage pros. It's just it's just hard to duplicate yourself, like Bulletary and. Um, you know, Vic did. So how did you all build that? How were you able to successfully build the Vic Braid Tennis Colleges in multiple locations without Vic being there and being sort of that engine, right? To keep the pros honest, right? Show up enough so parents feel like they're getting a touch of a touch of Vic, right? And <laughs> not just his, his substitute. That's the hard part, right? How did you all build that into a model? It, it was super difficult. Um, I think because his tennis school back in the day was so far ahead with with high-speed video and videotaping every student that comes through the door and, and working on not just the strokes and the athleticism but the software so the the analogy that I that I use is I like to look at the student the same way as we would look at a computer so the hardware is strokes and athleticism and most coaches work on that and that's you know, I'd say 90% of coaches are pretty darn good at teaching hardware. Uh, but software is more than mental and emotional. And I think that's where we kind of excelled a little bit. And uh, so for me, software is more of, you know, the mental would be more of the thinking components. What, what style are you that fits your, your personality? What's your best tactical plays? What's your greatest hits plays? And so like even nowadays, I do a lot of work with Paul Anacone here with the, the high performance SCTA here. And, and we talk a lot about it, but a good analogy for kids is a lot of the girls now, you know, they love Taylor Swift, right? But when she goes from arena to arena, she sells out 20,000 seat stadiums, but she has to play her 10 greatest hits. Mm -hmm. So she has to play her greatest hits night after night probably even if she doesn't want to play those songs anymore. But I, I try to educate the kids now, even nowadays that you have to know who you are. You have to know your identity. What are your greatest hits? And, mm -hmm. and try to play that style. Um, even way back in the day when we would, a couple of years ago even now, I was at, in Spain and working with an academy 
And they did a wonderful pep, pep talk. And the parents and the, and the coaches all said, look, get out there. Just play your game. You got to play your game. And I walk over to the boys. I go, you guys, what, what is your game? Right. One, one little dude goes, I haven't a clue. Right, right, right. Oh, I yeah. mean, we think they know, man, but they don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always say, like, um, you know, especially at the tour, even, even at the junior level, right? Obviously, you got to teach strokes, you got to build, you know, build fundamentals. But once you start getting to college readiness, right, sophomore, junior year, you got to, like, how do you win matches? Like, yeah. how do you win, right? So what are your, what's your go-to under pressure? What can you execute in high heels when you are nervous and, like, sweating bullets, right? What can you make right now? Not, like, yeah. what would look good. But yeah. what can you execute night in, night out, even on your worst day, to sort of make it out of the match? And I think that that's sort of in line with your greatest hits, correct? Yeah, I think so. I think that's really a, a great way to put it. Uh, and so, you know, like with with the idea of hardware and software, when, when we do spend time with the players on the, on court, and I'm still doing that now, maybe 15 hours a week, and I try to get them to understand that the hardware, the strokes and athleticism, and that's like four or five seconds. Right. And then you go to the software realm, right? I've been between point routines, rituals, performances, and, and customizing it to them. And then even when they sit down, changeovers, to me, that's a performance too. And right. so there's three performances that they have to be aware of. And uh, usually when parents and, and, and athletes buy into the, the fact that there's hardware and software, they get it. They go, oh, okay, it makes sense. Like a computer, they have to work seamlessly together. Right. And so it's been a ton of fun doing it. And I have a lot of great mentors and I've been lucky. I've been in, I've been in Southern California since the eighties and I live down in Laguna. Um, oh, yeah. Even though I, you know, I travel a lot, I still, you can't complain, you know, with, with our kind of job. So. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this though, because in the Bible, right, you've got the 10 commandments, right? So in the tennis parents Bible, what yes. would you say are the top 10 things that you do's and don'ts or recommend for tennis parents? All right. Well, that's a good, that's a good question. One of the sex, sections in that book is top 50 tennis parent blunders and how to avoid them. So some of those might be they're oblivious to periodization training, which you know what that is, obviously, but some of the parents don't get it. Um, I mean, of course, we've all made a share of blunders so periodization is knowing when to teach new aspects right so we don't want to maybe change strokes and change grips maybe two days before a tournament <laughs> uh, for me one of my blunders was you don't want to take your kids to the all-you-can-eat indian buffet at lunch during the tournament man i blew that i think every kid that went with me to that tournament years back lost after the buffet but, oh man, isn't that? I mean, that that's <laughs> but that's that's one of the things about making it to the last day by controlling the controllables is just not getting food poisoning, not getting bed bug, you know, just all the things off the court that immediately yeah. no, no matter how prepared you are, yes. if you get food poisoning, you you're done. You're, you're done. done. Yeah. So that's big, right? You know, nutrition, hydration. Uh, to me, I think with the parents, I want them to do what I would call the the co-pilot game. So let's say we're, we're, out, we're parents and we're traveling with our kids to a tournament. I want the junior to find the airport. I want them to find the American Airlines. They have to find TSA. They have to be the ones that find the, the gate 
find the seats on the airplane, the more we can have the kids be responsible for their own problem solving, the better they get at problem solving. And I think that was that was one of them in that book. That that book's a few years old right now, but that was one of the blunders is that, you know, parents sometimes they want their kids to just be uh, locked into them and following them all the time. So like a dependency, but yeah. I, I think they need to be independent. Yeah. To me, the kids that win are independent problem solvers, right? Well, it's funny you said that. So I was just on the court earlier today with the kid and I said, what do you think your job is? Right. And then what do you think my job is? So she said, my job as the coach is to tell her what to do. Right. I said, all right, we'll go clean the bathroom. <laughs> right. And then she said that her job as the player is to play well. I yeah. was like, all right, play well and lose. I was like, so you're wrong on both. Right. My job is to help you win and teach you how to win. Mm -hmm. Your job is to actually go out there and win, which is problem solving, not to play well. Yeah. Not, to, I mean, at, you know, at this level, right, where you're 16, 17, 18, you're on tour, your job is not to play well, right? Your job is to win the match, right? And if yeah. that means you got to chip, if that means you got to roll, if that means you got to slow the ball down, then, you know, that's just kind of what that means. But the job is not playing well. And so when you think about that problem solving aspect, I think yeah. if, 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 if the kids understood that, okay, my job wasn't like to show up, to try my best, to play well. Yeah, right? and to get in the car, my mom, my mom, my mom won't be mad at that. No, 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 I'm mad. You didn't, you didn't problem solve, right? You didn't do what it takes to win. You know yes. what I mean? And I think that that to me is is a good illustration of having them navigate the airport, right? Because it yeah. is just a maze. Yes, it is. It is. And you know, with the kids, sometimes going into tournaments, they have a lot of anxiety, right? Performance anxiety. But a good analogy for me is. When we chat with the kids about, look, just pretend you're uh, you're going into a haunted house at Halloween, and the first time you go through it, it's stressful, man. It's scary. But you go through the same haunted house four or five times, you're not even scared at all. It's fine. So getting them to view it in that in that realm, I think, was always interesting. And you said something absolutely terrific that. You asked your students, you're not telling them what to do, you're asking them. I think that's really meaningful that we don't walk on court and, and tell them what to do. We ask them, what do you think you should have done? What would be a better option? Or did, what would you do next time? You know, that kind of thing, right? So now they're problem solving instead of relying on you, the coach or the parent to problem solve. So if there's any parents out there, ask uh, instead of telling. Yeah. That might help. So you've got a, a number one bestseller right now. You got a new book out. Tell us about this book. I mean, we talk, We know you got the Tennis Parent Bible, right? Um, yeah. Tell us about this new book. Well, this book is based a little bit more on uh, the software the, or the parental psychology of life skills and character traits and a moral compass and dealing with all the... Uh, all of the uh, choking, panicking, uh, performance anxieties it's really interesting for me because most parents think that the coaches are teaching all these terrific life skills like perseverance, resiliency, work ethic, time management, organizing your weekly planners. The coaches are out there just trying to fix the backhand most of the time, right. you know, and the coaches think the parents are doing soft, soft skills or 
And so anyway, I don't think really most of the time anybody's doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's why I came up with this new book. To me, I'm on the court a lot. I travel a lot. This last weekend, I just I was coaching the uh, George Washington University, the ladies team in D.C., and I was doing the Mid-Atlantic Coaching Conference this weekend. And it's interesting that it's the same issues everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, it's uh, the coaches want to talk about parents and parental issues and what are their job descriptions and how do we get them off our back and and the the new book is based on that what are the tennis parents roles what's their logistical role uh emotional role in handling competition and i mean you know even just like the day of a tournament we as coaches we get to coach all week and sometimes we get their patterns of play and their mindset really really solid they're really ready to play but now we have to hand them off to the weekend coach and the weekend coach is the parent right right <laughs> right and so well here's an example a couple of weeks ago in the books i use a lot of storytelling and then we get into like the sports science solutions but so here's one of the stories that, that happened so the family, the Kalowskis came down from San Francisco and I'm down in Southern Cal, right? Mm-hmm. So they tell me on the phone before they come down, they go, the coaches say that my daughter Kelly is great all week. She's incredible, but they don't know why she never wins. So they come down for a weekend session down in Southern Cal. And it turns out uh, Martha, the mom, on the day of the tournament on Saturday, wakes up totally anxious and you can feel you can feel the energy just talking about it but she's mad at kelly's choice of breakfast she doesn't like the outfit she's wearing you know she's upset driving to the event she can't find parking she's wigged out about that so already the mindset of poor kelly is just absolutely fried so kelly loses kelly gets all the blame the next day peter takes her to the tournament peter talks about Okay, you're going to play a pusher, so you can't miss. The USC coaches are going to possibly be there to watch, so don't blow it. We just spent $2,000 to get here. We're not going to keep on forking over our hard-earned money, you know, that kind of thing. And then, of course, you know, after the match, the poor girl, and we see it all the time, the poor kid loses three times for one loss. And so what I see is they lose the match. So little Kelly's already upset that she didn't, get the result she wanted. So she loses once. Then the whole drive home from the tournament site, the dad's <laughs> bantering, right? About all the things you did wrong. And yeah. so now she loses twice. Yeah. And Monday comes along. The dad brings Kelly to the, to the practice session with the pro. And now the dad takes 40 minutes out of the, Kelly's hour telling the coach about all the things she did wrong. Yeah. So now poor Kelly loses three times. And then you <laughs> wonder why kids quit. And anyway, so it's so funny, me, you know, but <laughs> so so let me ask you um, this question because I feel like um, tennis parents need to have multiple personalities, right? At different phases, mm-hmm. right? So you know, you say um, early on, they're red ball age, right? Orange ball. You just want the kids to have fun, right? Yeah, uh, and then. You know, maybe like green ball, early yellow ball, like you need them to be more focused and to like take it a little more serious, right? Uh, then high school, you start to need them to compete, right? And to care, right? And then 
and, and you know, later in high school, you know, you need them to be tough, right? To be toughness and you need them to make adjustments and be more, to think about tennis all day and all night, right? Start thinking tonight about the tournament tomorrow because you gotta be, right? So what, what would you say, what advice would you give a tennis parent? Because, you know, as coaches, sometimes we just say, oh, just sit there and shut up and let me do my job, right? Yeah, yeah. When, when as a coach, I've called the parent several times, whether it's on a junior level or the pro tour, because ultimately the parent is the boss, right? And I say, I need you to say this X, I need you to say X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah. Help me out, I need you to do this, right? So it's not just, just let them have fun. It's not sit there and be quiet. It's like, and it's not just do what I tell you to do because it's gotta be two way thing. So what, what would you say the role of a tennis parent is? Cause I'm sure people are gonna listen to this conversation like, okay, well, we'll get, we, what, how should I behave, right? Yeah. Well, I think the answer to that question is it's customized to the little human being you have. Yeah. That's, you know, because they all have different growth development schedules. Some kids are, they blossom early with the mental or the emotional. They can handle stress maybe, but they can't move. Other kids might blossom athletically, but they can't close out sets and they can't handle pressure or maybe they can't focus long enough on a singular topic. So to me, the answer is based on the personality profile of of the individual, how, how they're wired. To me, that's really super important with kids. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. In fact, I'm so organized, bro. I wrote down some examples. All right, so we all know about Myers-Briggs type indicators, right? That people have different unique personalities and we have to get into their world. It's yeah. not the kid's job to get into the coach's world in my, my opinion. It's our job to get into their world and everybody's wired a little bit different. But uh, if your kid is more of a, I'll go through some of the categories of this personality profile and, and you'll find it pretty funny, but it's, it's pretty spot on. But so there are introverts and extroverts out there, right? So introverts are more reserved and reflective thinkers and they prefer like maybe to blend into the groups a little bit more. That's more of an introvert. Extroverts really enjoy the energy in a group lesson and they like being around people, hanging out with people afterwards and there's sometimes a little bit bored with mundane repetition of, you know, doing the same thing over and over. So for us as parents and coaches, we have to understand, are they wired more like an introvert or an extrovert? And it's a genetic predisposition. They're, they're born like this. They're born with a certain, you know, brain type, really. Um, the next category is more sensates or, or intuitives. And, and sensates are the people that want all the facts before they make a decision they tend to hesitate in matches more. Uh, they might have great footwork, but they have really slow cognitive processing speed. So they don't move. And the parents are like, look, I don't get it. My kid's the fastest kid when they race to the water fountain. But in a match, he doesn't move or she doesn't move. That's more of a sensate. Intuitive are kind of the opposite of sensates. Intuitive are the kind of people that, uh, they want to just do it first and analyze it later. <laughs> and so, you know, if we're coaching intuitive, it, to me, it's just, I just stand in front of them, shadow the drill and say, just copy this and then we'll talk about it. Right. That's yeah. getting into their world, right? Yeah. Uh, there's only four categories, but the third is thinkers or, or feelers and thinkers impersonalize matches in the business like fashion. And they kind of seem sometimes uncaring or indifferent that personality the opposite is more of the feelers and they want harmony and 
um, they want optimism. They struggle with gamesmanship often. And so how we deal with our kids, again, is based on how they're wired. So it's really easy. You just go online, go on to personality profiling. There's a hundred free tests you can take and, and try to get an understanding of how your child is wired. And, and those of you out there that have multiple kids, you, you know that they're usually not wired just like you. They think differently, they problem solve different. They're not like their brothers or sisters either. Uh, they're usually kind of unique. And so here's the last category, judges or perceivers. And judges are kids that like to have planned orderly structured lessons. Um, change, it's very uncomfortable for that mm. personality. Mm -hmm. Perceivers are uh, typically found in the future. What I mean by that is they could be on court six in a match and the score is five, two, they're winning, but they're already thinking about what are their friends going to say? Where's the trophy going in my room? What's my right. ranking going to be? Right. So now they blow the lead. Right. And it's yeah. super common. If you know they're, how they're wired, you see the same problems over and over and over year after year or crop after crop of kids. And so for me, if, if you want to, if you're a parent and you want to get to know the best way to kind of teach your child, not just in tennis, but life skills, dig into that. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Personality profiling. And, and that, that's sort of where I think the parent is a good partner, right? Because you know, you're with the kid a couple hours a day. Like yeah. The kid comes to you, right? Yes. Six, seven, eight. They know the kids got ADD, ADHD, the, da, 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 you know, they know they can be a good partner early on, you know, so I think that that's sort of where I think tennis parents are so confused on, they want to let the coach do their job, uh, but then they also want to like give you a little bit of a head start, like, hey, here, here's, wish I was my kid. I mean, I, I remember, you know, coaching someone, I think I taught him for like six months and at that point, the parent told me, oh, they've got ADD. And I was like, oh, well, that would have been great to know. Yeah. <laughs> they won. Totally, totally fine because most tennis players have it, right? Yeah. But knowing that, I could have limited the drills to nine minutes per drill. Then I changed, right? That's right. I'm, because as I'm doing the same drill for 17 minutes, my voice is escalating. My frustration is escalating, right? I'm getting a little bit more upset when I would have known. You know, that would have been, like, very helpful. It would save so much heart, hardship and drama. And I think you're right on the money too with just getting your phone and setting a timer for 10 minutes and go, look, Joey, just let's see if you can not talk for 10 minutes and then, then we'll talk for five minutes about trading cards or whatever you want to talk about. But yeah. I've had the same issue too. That's interesting you said that, but the parents want to hide it. Yeah, yeah. That's, or, that's not your best interest. Yeah, no, 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 it's, it's interesting. Um, so let me ask you this, though, because, you know, you've got uh, sort of a, a famous quote where happiness doesn't stem from winning, winning mm. stems from happiness. And, you know, what I always used to say is, um, you know, men need to win to be happy. This yeah, is yeah. tour level, right? And women need to be happy to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me, tell me about your quote. Tell me where it comes from and what, what, what made you believe that. Well, for me, uh I think that it's a happiness is, is a choice. It's not a result. It's, it's not for most kids, you know, when they're playing and, and top pros too, they get into a 64 draw tournament 
how many go home the winner and how many go home losers, right? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Right. You know, so the parents are happy if they win, you know, but the other 63, you know, 63 go home losing eventually. So my opinion, we have to get the kids to be happy about their performance. Uh, and a good analogy might be with a, a gal I got to work with a, a few years back too, but this kid was different. This is a figure skater. And she had a lot of performance anxieties and her, her best score, you know, where they hold up the, bo the board for scoring, her best was an 8.8. .8. She gets a 9.2, I think it was. So she beat her peak performance level better than she's ever done in that event. Mm -hmm. The next day, a Russian girl gets 9.6 and wins the gold. Mm -hmm. so, so this, the parent and the child, should they be upset they didn't win? Or should they be happy that they're progressing and improving their peak performance level? And to me, I think it's about peak performance level. And, yeah. and you know, the kids just, they just can't stay at that level long enough, most of them. They can dabble in it. And we see it, we're like, whoa, two, three games in a row where this girl's playing like a tour player. And then all of a sudden, lights out, baby. And can't hold it out for two games. They can't yeah. keep it together. And, so, uh, yeah, I think happiness is, is a choice we have to have. And I think we have to choose to start every day with gratitude and appreciation. And for some kids, they have to wake up and do a gratitude journal because mm -hmm. they're, and the parents too, because sometimes the parents are so upset that their neighbor down the street is ranked higher than their kid. They can't right. handle it, you know? Right. Um, yeah, I, I think that gratitude is something in this sport that I think we 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 always have to keep in the forefront. Because I mean, I think think about this, right? Yeah. Easter Bowl, right? You may lose second round, third round, but my gosh, you got to miss school to fly to Palm Springs to play against the best sixty-four kids in the country, perhaps some from from across the world. Your life is so bad, right? And I think that like being grateful and understanding that that everything it takes to even allow you to be able to have a chance to compete and a chance to battle. You gotta yeah. be grateful for that because the floor in this sport, obviously there are success stories for kids who come from nothing, right? But in general, right, the base of kids playing this sport are doing okay and need to sort yeah. of be reminded that, yeah, you're gonna enter a stressful environment, but it is yeah. such a luxury to have the ability to compete and stay in a hotel and try out. I mean, you know what I mean? It's just like gratitude I, sport is just like, oh, you know, it's just like. And I have to remind myself too, from a coaching standpoint, that when you do those tournaments and, and you know, be traveling the world with pros that we have to kick ourselves in the butt sometimes too. And, and remind ourselves to be grateful that, you know, we're at the Ritz Carlton right now. And, in Melbourne, it's not, it's not so bad, you know. Right. <laughs> so, oh, only, only if you got to stay in the Ritz Carlton for fourteen days during quarantine, then it's so bad. Other than that, oh man, yeah, that that's bad. No matter what hotel you stay in, right? But yeah, that, that, that was the only my my only uh, Australian Open sort of horror was having the that would. Quarantine and not expect it. It's different if you go there and expect it, but to land, yeah, yeah, to land and then like be hit with it is like, whoa, that wasn't part of the deal. So, you obviously are traveling the country speaking to to players, parents on this. Tell me what the number one mistake because we've talked about a lot of like parental blunders and 
you know, you and I going back and forth, but what is the like, let's say number one mistake you think a tennis parent makes? I think it's not um, understanding that you can't be a hobbyist tennis parent and expect to have a world-class, you know, a world-class player. If the parent's a hobbyist and not really involved, just expect to have a hobbyist kid. Mm-hmm. Let him play high school ball. Let him get a tan. That's mm-hmm. it. Right. But to me, I think the parents have to really oversee, especially until the child's about, you know, 15, but they have to oversee the weekly customized developmental plan and how many hours they're spending in each component, customizing it to the tournaments. Maybe if they're at tournaments, if they're the weekend coach, I'd like parents to text the coach what they think the athlete could work on as opposed to trying to coach the athlete. I think that's big. Mm-hmm. And a lot of parents, though, they even they don't understand how much time their child even has, whether they're homeschooled or they're at regular school. I try to do something called, well, I just call it the 168-hour rule. 168, so everybody gets 24 hours a day and seven days a week. So I have the parents and the athletes right? How many hours the kid likes to sleep? So eight hours times seven, about 56. How many hours in school, regular school, let's say 30 hours. How many hours of homework? 10. How many hours of piano? Four. That's about 100 hours a week. So this kid, this example, Mm -hmm. this athlete has 68 hours still free that they could use to, you know, make their words match their actions. And uh, I think that's meaningful that they understand how many hours they have. In Southern Cal here, we have a lot of homeschool kids. They have a hundred hours free. And they tell me, look, I don't have any time to work out. We, you know, we got to go to the mall and we got to work from, walk from Macy's to Nordstrom's and then back and we got to get lunch. And so well, we, we, we call that uh, a momager. Right. So like a mom, mom, mom manager. Right. So we, we call that the momager on tour, you know, what I mean? uh, where the moms involved. Well, let me ask you this, though, because. You know, we talk about sort of this parental process and engaging with the coach and how to properly engage with the coach and how those relationships break down. What advice would you give a parent? And we know you bounce around. A good tennis player has seven or eight coaches from the time yeah. they're six or seven years old to 18. So it's really common. But how would you suggest that a parent find a coach and stick with them? Like, what should they be looking for? Um, you know, one of the things mm-hmm. that I say when I, I be riding in the car and I think about my player and I say, hey, don't forget to do this. Hey, mentally prepare yourself for this tomorrow, right? And I say, and be grateful that your coach is thinking about you at a time you're not paying him to, right? So that's one of the things I, I talk about. But what do you what do you think parents should be looking for in a coach? Because I mean, I've, once you get to fundamentals, I mean, you know, it's only two or three good ways to hit a forehand, right? Once you yeah. get, what, what do you think they should be looking well, for? Well, I think number one is the uh, personal connection and uh, which is more of, I guess, the emotional aptitude of the coach, how well they can actually get along with people and, and the connection between the, the parent, the junior, that's big, and the coach. Um, I also recommend, don't get tricked by the dog and pony show when you go to visit certain academies. Go there and if you're going to look at an academy serious or a new coach serious, don't tell them you're coming. Right. Go ahead of time. Sit down outside the fences. You can observe. You can watch all the, the coaches in action. 
without getting, um, you know, that dog and pony show, I think that's important. And the third thing would just be get educated because you're not going to be jerked around. You're not going to be tricked. You're not going to lose a ton of money if you know what's going on. So get educated on the process. And if you're smarter than the coach, dump them. Get, get a better coach if you're smarter than the coach, but get educated, you know? Yeah. So that would be three uh, words of wisdom, I guess, from all my years in the trenches. Well, well let me ask you this, because you, I mean, you help, you know, Vic build academies. Yeah. What, um, and we talk about visiting academies and popping up. What is your take on academy versus staying local for you know, a top player? Um, it's a good question. I guess a lot of my lifelong friends are academy owners. Um, I love the idea of going anywhere where you can get the best coaches giving you all of their attention, or at least a lot of their attention. So if you go to an academy and you're on the top court and you have maybe you and another player, so a semi-private, right? And you have one or two good coaches there with those two good players, you're probably going to get good fast. If you're down on court 12 with the beginning coach that's getting paid 15 bucks an hour because they just want to build their resume, maybe it's not the best place for you. And so I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. It's kind of, to me, it's kind of like the same concept. It should my kid play high school tennis or, or not if they want to, play college ball that depends a lot on the quality of the coach and the quality of the program so i mean we know what percentage of high school kids even play d1 it's like two percent of high school players play yeah top yeah I mean, my, my, my thing about my thing about high school tennis is at least in illinois i say if you got a kid who struggles being a part of a team or yeah. has become like a tennis brat with all this attention being given to you. And you need to prepare them to play on a team in college. Mm. Probably okay. It's probably a good idea. To yeah. Play your junior or senior year of high school tennis, right? Number one. Yeah. Number two, play high school tennis if you have a chance to win state. If, yeah. you, if you are don't have a chance to win state, yeah. then that 10 weeks could probably be better spent playing with your coach at your club, right? Yeah. But I mean, like I've, well, I've, I've had like, you know, four or five state champions. That kind of, so as I always say, if you have a chance to win state. Yeah. And really, you know, your top 10 in the state, you know, if the draw shakes out, you're not sick, everything works out, you can win state. Um, yeah. You definitely play. Or if you have been the top dog at your club and it's always been about you, and you need a little bit of team. That that's sort of that's my barometer. But in general, yeah. you know, ten weeks of high school tennis for a top player could be time lost. Yes, well, yeah. I agree. And now, and now, what happens is, like in our state, there's a moratorium on USTA tournaments during high school season. So oh, okay. girls' high school season, there's no like. You know, there's no USTA tournaments, you know, in like the 14, 16s and 18s, right? So they're trying to like force people to play high school tennis. So, you know, it could be better spend training, but winning state, like Laura Granville won state in Illinois, you know, Keisha Klausing, Jerrica Boone, Katrina Adams. Um, you know, there's there's so there's some prestige to winning yeah. our state title. Oh. 
So I, that's why I'm a fan of people having a chance to win the Illinois state title. Because, you know, Katrina Adams is USDA president. Laura Granville played on tour. You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah, huge. Um, you know, there's some there's some prestige to it. So that's my take on high school tennis. Oh, I think that's beautiful. And I think that's why tennis parents have to be educated. And, and guys that have been in the trenches for a while, maybe it's up to us to help the parents so they don't, you know, suffer like the other parents have done the last hundred years because it's not easy huh so this is your 10th book yes uh, what do you think a where can we find it right uh and b what what is what is different about this one versus the previous nine right you know obviously the bible for tennis parents etc what's what's different about this one well different books were written for different audiences so some some are written for coaches like One's called The Soft Science of Tennis, and that really digs deeper into the whole personality profiling and how how we as coaches um, need to get into their world. So that's a whole different book. Uh, Championship Tennis was Human Kinetics Publishing. If you remember the publisher there, that was a kind of a whole game approach where they wanted a little bit of everything, a little bit of athleticism and stroke mechanics and not just primary strokes, but all the secondary strokes, like how to hit short angles and high and heavies and slices and all that stuff. And, and that got into mental and emotional. Um, preparing for pressure, that's, that's for top juniors for sure. Um, of course, this, we talked about the tennis parent Bibles and the parent books, but uh, how to attract the college scholarship was one that I just kind of wrote. Um, I just found that so often we're, we're teaching athletes um, how to fly, but we're not teaching them where to land. Mm. Mm. You know, they they go to the wrong college for the wrong reasons, and then you get the call eight months later, and they want to leave because now they don't like the coach or whatever reason. They don't like winter, right. or they don't think like they're on a team with all these people that don't shave under their arms and don't take showers. There's weird stuff like that, you know. So those are the kind of calls you get. And so to me, I wanted I wanted parents and kids to understand that that is a total job to pick the right school. And of course, if they can get their level good enough that they're in the buyer's market, they got it made because they're going to get coaches calling them. If they didn't work correctly, now they're in the seller's market. Now they have to sell their goods and sell the, the possibility that just maybe I can help you your squad that's a tough place to be if you're a if you're a kid you know that's where there's a lot of these companies that charge you know two three four five thousand dollars to make a video oh and goodness. they'll send it out for you so but i'm not a fan yeah i think not, that, a, fan. Uh, not you know, a fan that's that's that's, you know. that's bad and now with the transfer portal you know like nil etc you know the rules are changed kids can like jump ship without having to sit out a year you know what i mean it's it's Yes. It's getting tricky. It is. But Amazon's the best place to find the books. And obviously there's ebooks, but they do something called print on demand now, if you guys don't know about that. And mm -hmm. they'll print a book and have it to your house within a few days. And it's great for guys like us that we don't we don't have to have a garage full of books with your wife <laughs> yelling yeah, you know. So that's awesome. We don't have that to deal with. And, but, and then my website is just called maximizingtennispotential.com. 
If you want though too, we can add my contact to this. If anybody wants to talk about the issues they're going through, I'm more than happy to spend some time on the phone and chatting. So, so let me ask you, so are you on court teaching now? You do most of your time speaking. Um, how can people connect with you? What, what, how do you divide your time now? And how can people, besides reading the book, uh, yeah. connect with you to perhaps get some two-way dialogue? Yeah, well, I, I am, I'm trying to spend more time at home here in Southern Cal now. Uh, for the last year, I'm only on the road one week out of the month, so that's great. And that's usually doing conferences or working with players. I go to Florida to work with players in New York. And so anyway, I sometimes with families, they'd rather have me fly to them than having the young kids fly out here to California. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting that I just do a lot of multitasking. So I work with a lot of parents. I work with the USTA with tennis parent webinars. And we're doing something here called the Team SoCal, the top 10 in every age division. So I'm doing uh, mental emotional training with Paul Anico in the last year, year and a, year and a half maybe. And uh, that's a ton of fun too. So, and, and, and the last thing is probably 12 hours a week, I'm doing Zoom sessions where we have athletes you know, videotape their real matches. So match, match video analysis. Mm -hmm. You can go right on Zoom, hook it up to Zoom through your laptop. We can analyze and go through each game of the sets and why are you winning or losing? And now the kids start to get aware of things like opponent awareness, self-awareness, you know, score management, yeah. Yeah. momentum management, focus management. Yeah. It goes on and on. The, the between point software there's so many things that they have to deal with, but just the psychological side of competing that they don't get when they're just rallying and playing catch at their academies. Mm -hmm. To me, that's like an analogy I use that practice usually in academies is a comfortable, convenient catch, play catch. Yeah, you see it everywhere, right? Then they get into the match. It's a violent game of keep away. Right. And now they're like, what the heck's going on, man? This is not all like yesterday. Right. Exactly. Anyway, anyway, yeah, practice in the manner you're expected to perform is a good motto, I think. Yeah. So, well, man, this has been great. I want to I thank you for your time. Um, always Come on, you, man. Thank you. And once again, the books aren't too long, right? For, for those tennis players, you know, with short attention span, or you just need yeah. some bathroom reading. You know what I mean? The, these chapters are great. And so, yeah, I recommend reading at least one, if not all of the books uh, to the audience, because I think it is, it's written from the heart. It's written from a place of expertise, knowledge, experience, and written in a way I think people can absorb, you know? So, well, thank you. And look, if anybody's out there, if anybody cannot afford the books, just shoot me an email. You can just find my name on, I'm on the, you know, the web everywhere. And I'll just send you an ebook. So look, if you can't afford it and you're somewhere where you want the information, I'll just email it to you. So don't worry about that. Good man. All right. I want to thank you for coming on. This has been a tennis.com podcast with well-known author, speaker, coach, tennis parent, Frank Giampaolo. Thank you for joining. All right, come on. Thanks, bro.